Now we come here to chapter 5, and the bridegroom replies to this. And he says, I'm coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. There seems to be a certain amount of conflict in the mind of the bride about whether they should spend time in fellowship and communion or time in going out yonder and discharging their responsibilities. And both are essential. I think we need to sit at Jesus' feet and then follow those feet as they go out yonder on the hillside looking for the lost sheep and out yonder into the field, which is the world, to sow the seed of the Word of God today. And friends, I hope you get the message. That's what we're trying to do. Let's get the Word out. We're seeing it do a job today. It's getting a message through. There is a success story because he's blessing his Word, and that's the only thing he promised to bless, and we need to get it out. Now, listen to him. I'm coming to my garden, my sister. My spouse, I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. In other words, let's have fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door, come in, I'll sup with you. And that is the fellowship we need. And John says in connection with that fellowship, he said, These things we written unto you that your joy might be full. Not only have fellowship, but that your joy might be full. He wants you to have a good time. And are you having a good time as a Christian? Well, some of us are not. And we ought to be having a good time today. I have some wonderful letters from people that are in hospitals and rest homes, and they're not very restful. That is, many of them are not. And these people are telling about their suffering, the disease they have, and all that sort of thing. And then they're telling about how wonderful it is to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus. One dear lady, and the tears came to my eyes, she says, at night when the nurse tucks me in, at, I think she said 11 o'clock, for about an hour or two hours till she goes to sleep, she says, I pray for you. Isn't that wonderful? And then she says, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I pray for you again. And then she says, how wonderful it is to have fellowship with him. Oh, how beautiful it is. Now we come to a very unusual thing, and it was a custom of that day. And it's the bride now speaking. And this brings us to the fourth canticle. This is the fourth song, a little folk song. I didn't bring my guitar today, so I can't sing it for you. But listen to it. Verse 2, chapter 5, Song of Solomon. I sleep, but my heart waketh. That's marvelous, isn't it? My heart is awake. I'm on the alert. I'm watching. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. He's been out in the night. He's been busy. Bride crawled up in bed. All the church today needs to hear this message. All of us believers need to hear it today. And let's get out of bed and get busy. If the Lord gives us health, let's start moving for him. I put off my coat. 
How shall I put it on? I wash my feet. How shall I defile them? And she rationalizes. Now, she said, I'm already in bed. Now, remember in that day, even in a palace, the bedroom floor was dirt generally. And here, it's a dirt floor. And she says, I'm in bed. I've washed my feet. And I got in bed. I don't want to get out and get my feet dirty again. My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels, that is, my uh, motion, they were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. Now, the custom of that day, and it was a lovely custom, was this, that when a man was in love with a girl, and he really wanted to express that love, that she was the only one, he'd go to her home, and they had always a hole in the door where you could reach a hand through to get the handle on the inside. They were very uncivilized in that day. They didn't lock the doors. They didn't have people breaking in like they do today. We're civilized, and they were uncivilized. But anyway, why the lover would come, he would reach inside, not open the door, but he would put myrrh and frankincense on the handle of the door. And when she would come to open the door, why, this wonderful fragrance would get on her. Now you have that picture here. She heard his voice, and she knew he was somewhere around. And she got up and went to the door. And when she took hold of the handle, well, there was myrrh and frankincense and the sweetness of it, and the sweetness of his presence, you see. He'd been there. And I think if we get a move on today, a great many of us, start doing something for God, we'd find sometime the sweetness of his presence on the handle of the door, <laughs> on our own bedchamber. We'd feel like that we have had real personal fellowship with him. What a beautiful picture this is, and frankly, what a glorious picture this is. Now, this brings us actually to the end of this song. Wasn't this a little gem by the way, it's the briefest of the songs, but it's a beautiful thing. Now, friends, we come today to the fifth chapter of the Song of Solomon at verse 6. Now, as we come here, I need to remind you again that we have here the romance, the love story, and that's what it is, this Song of Solomon, with this Shulamite girl a girl from up in the hill country of Ephraim, in a family of tenant farmers, poor. Now Solomon wins her heart, brings her to the palace in Jerusalem. And this bride, I tell you, in these songs here, she reveals how she's impressed by everything that is there, by the palace and the throne and the table that Solomon prepared for them to eat. And, of course, the wonderful worship and so many other things. And then we had this lovely story last time about this bride. He came to rouse her up to come with him because his head was wet with the dew. And the reason was he was out yonder looking for the sheep that was lost because, you remember, he was a shepherd and also... He was out on the king's business, and she didn't want to get out of bed. She didn't even want to open the door because 
you see the floor in that day generally was a dirt floor, and she didn't want to get her feet dirty. She'd wash them when she got in bed. She wanted to stay there. And what a picture of the church today. Church doesn't go very far from home. Very few churches get out from and under the shadow of the church steeple. They don't like to get off of the church steps. In fact, that's pretty far for some of them to go as a result. They've lost fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Actually, they have. And I think that's one of those little foxes that destroy the grapes today. We lose our fellowship when we step out of the will of God. That's what it means to quench the Spirit. You quench the Spirit when you won't go where He wants you to go and do what He wants you to do. And so here, this bridegroom, and he did a lovely thing. It was a custom of that day. He came and put on the handle of the door the myrrh and the frankincense, and the sweet odor filled the room. And when she got up, she put her hand on the handle, and there was all of this frankincense and myrrh. And she looked for him then. She opened the door and called to him. And we read now in verse 6, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. Fellowship's broken, you see, at a time like that. And I personally believe that there are a great many Christians today that have done two things, that they have grieved the Spirit, and that's sin in their lives, and they've quenched the Spirit, and that means they've stepped out of the will of God, not obedient to Him. And that'll break fellowship with Him, and that causes us to lose our joy. Now, it doesn't mean we'll lose our salvation but we'll sure lose the joy of our salvation. And it doesn't mean that we've lost the Holy Spirit even. It simply means this. Paul put it like this, "...grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption." He didn't say that you'd grieve the Holy Spirit away. You wouldn't do that. You just lose your fellowship. And the great many Christians are in that position today. I had a man tell me some time ago, he says, you know, you speak of the reality of Christ in your life. He said, I don't have it. And what a dead giveaway that was. Well, I know that man. He's a friend of mine. And I could tell him very easily, in a very loving manner, I trust, that he's out of the will of God. I don't think there's any question about that. He has attempted to say that what he's doing is the will of God, and the reason is because that's what he wants to do. And he very definitely admits that, that this is the thing he wants to do. Well, it may not always be the will of God for us. And so the bride here, she's lost fellowship. I tell you, if you're not doing anything today for the Lord, you haven't lost your salvation, but you sure missed a whole lot. You are missing something. You're missing a sweet fellowship with him. Now, verse 7, "...the watchmen that went about the city found me, they smote me, they wounded me, the keepers of the walls took away my veil from me." You see, it was not safe to be on the streets of Jerusalem in that day. That was a 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. It wasn't safe on the streets of Jerusalem at night. And today, it's not safe on the streets of Los Angeles 
at night and in some places in the daytime. So we've come a long ways, haven't we? Only thing is, we've been going around in a circle, and we seem to be right back where man was thousands of years ago. And it wasn't safe for out there. And I wonder today how many realize how impotent and powerless we are if we attempt to go out on our own. Now, I'm afraid that a great deal of enthusiasm is being worked up to do just one thing, and that is to knock on doors. Now, that's sure been neglected a long time. But I'm confident that there's certain people who ought not to be knocking on doors. And there's certain ones that I do not think ought to be witnessing at all. I have a friend that is in another state, and when I'm there, he always wants me to play golf with him. And I do. I enjoy being with him. But he has no tact whatsoever. And yet he has a zeal to witness for the Lord. I have seen him make waitresses angry. I've seen him make strangers that we meet angry. And he says, you know, says there's sure a lot of opposition against the gospel today, isn't there? Well, I couldn't help but say to him, I don't think there's as much opposition as you think there is. I said, it might have something to do with the way that we present it. And then I called his attention. I said, you know, one of the most hostile persons that the Lord Jesus ever approached was that woman, that Samaritan woman, came down to the well. She was defiant. And I said, have you ever noticed how he approached her? He didn't approach her as if he's got something and he's going to cram it down her throat. He said to her, you give me to drink. <laughs> oh, my. He takes the lowly place and he asks her for something. Then he very courteously says, Oh, I could have given you water if you'd have asked for it. And finally, she asked for it. And he didn't offer it till she asked for it. My friend, you and I need to, before we attempt to cram the gospel down the throats of some folk, we need to give them a little appetite for it. Maybe they could see something in us. So many of them don't see anything in us, but maybe they ought to see something first. Maybe they ought to find out whether it's real in our hearts and lives first. And so we need to be very careful about that. But there is today an opposition to the Word of God. And here we find that it comes from unexpected quarters. And I don't know, the watchman there, he should have been the one to encourage this girl. But the thing was that they smote me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. And this girl's having a difficult time, by the way, not being protected by the ones that should protect it. Poor preachers find themselves deserted by a board that's turned against them because he may be preaching a little too strong for them. The thing is that the opposition comes from those sometimes who should be protecting now, this girl, this bride, she meets the daughters of Jerusalem. And we have here now an antiphony. That means she sings one part, they sing another part. That sounds like an opera, does it not? Now she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him 
that I'm sick of love. If you find him, tell him how much I miss him, how much I love him, and let him know that I'm looking for him. Now, that is the thought that you have at this particular juncture. Now, the daughters of Jerusalem, they speak and answer her. And very candidly, I would say they're rather skeptical here. She's in love with him, and now the garden has lost its fragrance, and the myrrh and the frankincense don't mean much to her, and the beauty of the flowers have withered. May I say to you that she misses him, and they are a little skeptical. Did you note what they say now? What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Who is this Jesus, anyway? What makes you think Jesus is different from anyone else? There have been other great religious leaders. They're great also. Why do you think that Jesus is different? Why do you think that he is who he claims to be? Believe me, friends, there's a lot of skepticism on the outside today. And the tragedy of the hour is that The church is not answering Jesus Christ's superstar. The church doesn't seem to have an answer for that today. In fact, it's being played in a great many churches, and it's blasphemy because it denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it asks the question and then attempts to answer it. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Well, Jesus is just a man. That's what the play said. He's just a man. (laughs) May I say to you, there's been a lot of discussion about him, and there's more controversy about him than any person that ever lived. He's the most controversial figure in history. Now, if you don't believe it, let me ask you a question. Would you want to get excited about Julius Caesar today? Suppose someone would say he's a rascal. Would you want to argue it? I don't know about you. I would not let him... If they want to think that, fine. He probably was. But suppose somebody thinks that he's a saint. You even want to argue that. I wouldn't argue that. He could have been a saint. I don't think so. But nevertheless, it's no reason to argue, is it? But the minute you mention Jesus Christ, I tell you, the human family chooses upside. It's interesting. God made it that way. God wouldn't even let Pilate off easy. Pilate called for a basin of water, washed his hands... He said, I won't have anything to do with him. He just thought that. Because the oldest creed in the church for 1,900 years has been saying, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, you didn't wash your hands. You made a decision. He forced you to make a decision, though you thought he was the prisoner and you were the judge. But he was the judge and you were the prisoner. And today, every man has to make a decision. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? Why do you think he's different in these anthologies of religion today? They have the great religious leaders, they say, the founders of religion, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Gandhi, and Buddha, and all the rest. May I say to you, the early church, according to Tertullian, when the persecution began, he said that 
the great problem was that the early church would rather die than have Jesus put down on a plane with the heathen deities of the Roman Empire. And they just refused to take a pinch of incense and put it down before the image of a Caesar. They just didn't do it. And why? Because their beloved was different. <laughs> the bride now is going to answer, and she's going to answer their skepticism. You think that they cooled her off and that somehow or another she's going to tone it down. You're wrong. Will you notice what she says? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the burl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is the one. And now she waxes eloquent concerning him. And there's something here that's so obvious. And this is very much in detail. She describes him in minute detail. You know what that means? That means that she knew him. <laughs> oh, how she knew him. And my friend, if you are going to defend Jesus Christ today and witness for him, you'll need to know him. And not only know him, but be able to wax eloquent on his behalf. And when I say eloquent, I do not mean in language, but in enthusiasm and excitement and love and zeal for his person. You need not only know him, you must love him. That is the challenge that you find here. I tell you, the bride knew him. <laughs> she knew him, and she loved him. And she says that he's white and ruddy, and he's the chiefest among 10,000. What a picture you have here. And I want to share with you today what some others have said about the person of Christ, just in his humanity. He's altogether lovely. And Dr. C.I. Schofield, who gave the notes on the Schofield Bible at first, he's the one that wrote this. And I'm going to share a little of it with you. All other greatness has been marred by littleness. All other wisdom has been flawed by folly. All other goodness has been tainted by imperfection. Jesus Christ remains the only being of whom without gross flattery it could be asserted he's altogether lovely. The loveliness of Christ. First of all, it seems to me this loveliness of Christ consists in his perfect humanity. I wonder if I'm understood. I do not now mean that he was a perfect human, but that he was perfectly human. 
in everything but our sins and our evil natures. He is one of us. He grew in stature and in grace. He labored and wept and prayed and loved. He was tempted in all points as we are, sin apart. With Thomas we confess him, Lord and God. We adore and revere him. But, beloved, there's no other who establishes with us such intimacy, who comes so close to these human hearts of ours, no one in the universe of whom we are so little afraid. He enters as simply and naturally into our 20th century lives as if he had been reared in the same street. He's not one of the ancients. How wholesomely and genuinely human he is. Martha scolds him. John, who has seen him raise the dead, still the tempest, and talk with Moses and Elijah on the mount, does not hesitate to make a pill of his breast at supper. Peter will not let him wash his feet, but afterwards wants his head and hands included in the ablution. They ask him foolish questions, rebuke him and venerate him, adore him all in a breath. And he calls them by their first names and tells them to fear not and assures them of his love. And in all this, he seems to me altogether lovely. He is altogether lovely. Is he altogether lovely to you? That's important. Now, I want to pick up there another section of that little track from Dr. Schofield's little track, The Loveliness of Christ. And it says this, The saintliness of Jesus is so warm and human that it attracts and inspires. We find in it nothing austere or inaccessible, like a statue in a niche. The beauty of his holiness reminds one rather of a rose or a bank of violets. And he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. I just put that in. Now I'm reading. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. All kinds of sinners. Nicodemus, the moral religious sinner. And Mary of Magdala, out of whom went seven demons the shocking kind of sinner. He comes into the sinful life as a bright, clear stream enters a stagnant pool. The stream is not afraid of contamination, but its sweet energy cleanses the pool. I remark again, and as connected with this, that his sympathy is altogether lovely. He is always being touched with compassion. The multitude without a shepherd, the sorrowing widow of Nain, the little dead child of the ruler, the demonic of Gadara, the hungry five thousand, whatever suffers touches Jesus. His very wrath against the scribes and Pharisees is but the excess of his sympathy for those who suffer under their hard self-righteousness. Did you ever find Jesus looking for deserving poor? He healed all their sick. And what grace in his sympathy. Why did he touch that poor leper? He could have healed him with a word, as he did the nobleman's son. Why for years the wretch had been an outcast, cut off from kin, dehumanized. He lost the sense of being a man, 
It was defilement to approach him. Well, the touch of Jesus made him human again, as well as healed him. A Christian woman, laboring among the moral lepers of London, found a poor street girl, desperately ill, in a bare, cold room. With her own hands, she ministered to her, changing her bed linen, procuring medicines, nourishing food, a fire, and making the poor place as bright and cheery as possible. And then she said, "'May I pray with you?' "'No,' said the girl, "'you don't care for me. You are doing this to get to heaven.'" Many days passed, and the Christian woman, unwearily kind, the sinful girl hard and bitter. At last the Christian said, "'My dear, you are nearly well now, and I shall not come again.'" But as it is my last visit, I want you to let me kiss you. And the pure lips that had known only prayers and holy words met the lips defiled by oaths and by unholy caresses. And then, my friends, the hard heart broke. That was Christ's way. May I say to you, as I've read this, May I say to you, this little book opened, did it not, with that very beautiful statement, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. May I say to you, he wants today to bestow his love, his affection, his care, his grace, and his mercy upon you. (laughs) And we are as hard as that poor sinning girl was. And then will you notice something else? That's in this little tract. Can you fancy him calling a convention of the Pharisees to discuss methods of reaching the masses? That leads me to remark that his humility was altogether lovely. And he, the only one who ever had the choice of how and where he should be born, he entered this life as one of the masses. What meekness, what lowliness. I am among you as one that serveth. He began to wash his disciples' feet. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Can you think of Jesus posing and demanding his rights? But it is in his way with sinners that the supreme loveliness of Christ is most sweetly shown. How gentle he is, yet how faithful. How considerate, how respectful, Nicodemus, candid and sincere, but proud of his position as a master in Israel, and timid lest he should imperil it, comes to Jesus by night. Before he departs, the master has learned his utter ignorance of the first step toward the kingdom and goes away to think over the personal application of they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil." But he has not heard one harsh word, one utterance that can wound his self-respect. When he speaks to the silent, despairing woman after her accusers have gone out one by one, he uses for woman the same word as he used when addressing his mother from the cross. Follow him to Jacob's well at high noon and hear his conversation with the woman of Samaria. How patiently he unfolds the deepest truths, how gently, yet faithfully he presses the great ulcer of sin 
which is eating away her soul. But he could not be more respectful to Mary of Bethany. Even in the agonies of death, he could hear the cry of despairing faith. When conquerors returned from far wars and strange lands, they bring their chiefest captives as a trophy. It was enough for Christ to take back to heaven the soul of a thief. Yea, he's altogether lovely, and now I've left myself no room to speak of his dignity, of his virile manliness, of his perfect courage. There is in Jesus a perfect equipoise of various perfections. All the elements of perfect character are in lovely balance. His gentleness is never weak. His courage is never brutal. My friend, you may study these things for yourself. Follow him through all the scenes of outrage and insult on the night and morning of his arrest and trial. Behold him before the high priest, before Pilate, before Herod. See him browbeaten, bullied, scourged, smitten upon the face, spit upon, mocked. How his inherent greatness comes out. Not once does he lose his self-poise, his high dignity. Let me ask some unsaved sinner here to follow him still farther. Go with the jeering crowd without the gates. See him stretched upon the great rough cross, and hear the dreadful sound of the sledge as the spikes are forced through his hands and feet. See as the yelling mob falls back, the cross bearing this gentlest, sweetest, bravest, loveliest man, upreared until it falls into the socket in the ground, and sitting down they watched him there. You watch too. Hear him ask the Father to forgive his murderers. Hear all the cries from the cross. Is he not altogether lovely? What does it all mean? He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. To him all that believe are justified from all things. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I close with a word of personal testimony. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Will you not accept him as your Savior and beloved and friend? And that's the end of the quotation, friends. And I want to add to it, amen. That means I agree with every word of it. My beloved is the chiefest among 10,000. He is the one that's altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then just one more thing, let me pass on to you. His birth was contrary to the laws of life. His death was contrary to the laws of death. He had no cornfields or fisheries, but he could spread a table for 5,000 and have bread and fish to spare. He walked on no beautiful carpets or velvet rugs, but he walked on the waters of the Sea of Galilee, and they supported him. When he died, few men mourned, but a black crepe was hung over the sun. The men trembled not for their sins. The earth beneath them shook 
under the load. All nature honored him. Sinners alone rejected him. Corruption could not get hold of his body. The soil that had been reddened with his blood could not claim his dust. Three years he preached his gospel. He wrote no book, built no church house, had no monetary backing. But after 1,900 years, he is the one central character of human history, the pivot around which the events of the ages revolve, and the only regenerator of the human race. Was it merely the son of Joseph and Mary who crossed the world's horizon 1,900 years ago? Was it merely human blood that was spilled on Calvary's hill for the redemption of sinners? What thinking man can keep from exclaiming, My Lord and my God, this is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And she knew him. She loved him. And she makes him known. (laughs) That's important. Now in chapter 6, verse 1, we read, the question is asked. These that were skeptical at first and cynical, they now ask the question, Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fattest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? And they say, now we'll help you find him. (laughs) We want to see this one that you're telling about. We want to get a look at him ourselves. He must be wonderful. And the Lord Jesus said, The one that seeks is going to find. He that cometh to me I'll in no wise cast out. Now will you listen to the bride? This is her last word in this book. No, it's not the last word, but it's getting down close to the last word for her. She says, verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to feed in the garden and to gather lilies. She located him. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. What assurance, what satisfaction, what joy. God is satisfied with Jesus. He's satisfied with him. This is my beloved son, he says. Hear him. And he satisfied what he did for us on the cross yonder. And he says that if you come to him, you will not perish. You'll have everlasting life. What an invitation has gone out. He speaks of his bride now. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. And then down in verse 10, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Now, that's the other side of the rapture of the church. You see, we always look at it from our side. Naturally, we would. And we say the Lord himself will come from heaven. A shout. The voice of the archangel, his voice. The trump of God, his voice will be like a trumpet. He's going to call his own. But the other side, when the church comes into his presence, I tell you, when those of the angelic host see that, it's going to be one of the greatest sights that eternity will ever behold. 
when his church goes yonder to meet him. I think that's going to be one of the most thrilling events, and certainly it'll be for us. And you have a picture of it, of course, when this girl, Rebecca, you remember, came back to meet Isaac. And you have Isaac walking in the field. And then he looks out yonder, and there comes that camel caravan. And Rebecca on the camel, and she lights off the camel and comes to meet him. And what a picture, what a glorious picture that will be when you and I go into the presence of Christ someday. And now we find here, verse 11, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. And I can't resist intruding this. I had a preacher friend that went in to speak to a bunch of unbelievers. They were actually, some of them college professors, really, but they're not as fruitcake as far as life is concerned. Their theories have them way out in left field. And I asked him about it. I said, what did you think you accomplished? He said, all I did, it was scriptural. He said, I went down into the garden of nuts. No question about that. Well, let's move on. Verse 13, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon thee. What will ye see in the Shulamite? As it were, the company of two armies. And he has made the statement that we are before the demonstration of his glory and his grace throughout all ages. That, you remember, is the thing we're told in Ephesians, the second chapter, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. All a created universe is going to see all of us, and none of us are worthy to be there, but we're going to be there. Why? Because he loved us and gave himself for us. How wonderful it's going to be. And we'll demonstrate the grace of God. We're there for his glory and for our good. May I say to you, I can't think of anything better than that. Now, in chapter 7, you have this wonderful picture here that he gives of her. And then all she can say, and all she needs say, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Oh, to know today that Christ belongs to us and that he wants to do us good. He says, come and we'll do you good. He wants to help you, friend. He doesn't want to hurt any of you. He wants to help you. And then here in chapter 8, we have this that is quite interesting. The bride says, we have a little sister. She hath no breast. What shall we do for a sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? Well, who's going to speak for her? Well, may I say to you, nobody warned her. We were outcasts. Well, he saved us, not because we were attractive, but because he saw our lost condition and he loved us. He'd created us. Now he wants to save us. How wonderful. What a picture. And that little sister, all these nations out here, we were part of it, by the way. And he wanted to get the word out to us. And now the bride here speaks and has the last word. She says in verse 14 now of chapter 8, Make haste, my beloved, 
And be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. You remember, she saw him there when he came back like that. And now she's saying, return. And this is the bride over here in the book of Revelation. The last thing she says is, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. My friend, you can't say that unless you know him unless you love him, and unless you make him known. I don't think you can say that. Now, you can be saved, but you can't look up and say, Come, Lord Jesus, I want you to come. Oh, my friend, give us that, that Paul said. He'll give a crown to those that love his appearing. And to love his appearing means to love him. This is a wonderful little book. We've only stood on the fringe of it, and I trust it's blessed our hearts.